The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we can sit in, in our chairs here and, and at a slow pace, sort of, sing, forgiven, forgiven. And it's easy in that moment of sitting and singing to miss the magnitude of that phrase, we are forgiven. That means that eternity is different for us. That means that right now is different for us. That means that I'm speaking right now, we are speaking right now, me audibly, the rest of us in our hearts, we are, we are speaking to you. The gate to your throne room has been opened and you have invited us in and how at this moment now have actually welcomed us in. We are in your presence talking to you on promise that you will give us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's because we are forgiven. And because we are able to approach there walking into the room, walking with Jesus our priest who's opened the way in for us. We're forgiven, and so we walk every moment in him. So we can talk to you, and we can now talk to you about this passage and this subject before us, and can trust that you will minister it to us in the ways and, and the various angles and particular points that, that are applicable to each one of us. So that's what we ask for. This grace and mercy right now. You've forgiven us, we're yours. You've given us yourself, and now do that again. Today, in whatever points, in whatever ways are relevant for each one of us, as your forgiven children grow us up. Give growth, please, now. Make my words clear where they're confusing. Make, make them... Uh, eloquent enough to, to catch and teach us, Lord. You're the one who teaches, so teach us. We look to you now and look to your word. Spirit of God, own this time, please. Make Jesus great here and grow us up. We trust ourselves to your wise hand and say thank you. In his name we pray, amen. We return to Colossians chapter 2 this morning, and by the time we come to verse 16, we've heard extensive explanation from Paul already about the life we are supposed to walk with Jesus, the life we get to walk with Jesus. He's, he's told us that we walk with him alert to the danger that's all around us, 
tempting us to seek life elsewhere. We saw that in verse 8, and that actually comes up again in our passage today. So we walk alert to danger, but we walk aware that in Christ we have all that we need for life. And we walk gloriously. We walk freed from sin's power over us, and we walk forgiven. God actually wants us not just to be forgiven, but to walk in forgiveness, to walk knowing it and enjoying it. That's, that's the walk that he has made for us and provided for us, sweet release from the power and penalty of sin in Christ. And our passage for today then comes right out of that and tightly connects to that kind of a walk we have in Christ that's ours and is going to warn us again about a danger that, that threatens that walk. But it's a slightly different warning than what we've seen already. Up in verse 8, we talked about this before, what we were warned against there, what was coming at the church there and was, was surrounding them, though it's never very specific. In some way, it was about, about worldview and, and approach and goal and value. The word used there is philosophy. Well, here now, the warning is going to be not philosophy, but it's going to be about the danger of practices. Or we might say practicing the idea that we must practice certain things. We must do, or, or not do, we must practice in a certain way in order to got, gain God's blessing and reach the type of life that we're called to, that we're after. That's what was being placed around them and, and offered, offered to the church there in, in some way, that you must practice in a certain way to get life there and here. I wonder if that ever sneaks up on you. It can be tricky. And I found that as I've worked this passage and now written and thought about this sermon, it's still tricky. Because we're talking about practicing and being alerted to the danger of practicing while it, we must acknowledge that there are certain things that Christians are supposed to do. The next chapter is full of them. We're, we're going to come to that. There are Christian things that we should practice. But here now, there, there's something really important for us to see, and, and tricky, really, but important for us to see, that, that before we get to chapter 3 and, it, and its commands about how we are to be and what we are to do, that in Christ, our focus must not be on the things we do. That, that's really important that we, that we kind of sit in that, settle in that. You may recall some months back when we preached, um, this is shortly after Easter, we preached in Romans 6, 7, and 8, and we talked there about some very similar ideas and how the Old Testament law, with all of its practices, worked was like a list. Remember this? Like a list held out in front. And, and, it, and the problem is that it draws our attention. Here's the list, and we get very easily wrapped up in the doing of the list. Our focus shifts onto what we must do. And the point we're going to be working on here this morning here is that, that in Christ, our focus must not shift onto the list, onto the practices themselves to find life. God wants us. He wants to commune with our hearts. He wants relationship with us on the inside far more than he wants obedience only with the hands on the outside. That's not really either or, but it's priority. This comes before chapter 3. It's, not, it's no accident. This comes before chapter 3. So we, 
We must see this today. God wants relationship. This is a sweet thing for us. Relationship with God within. That's what he's after. Within. And then we'll find out that actually does change us and, and it affects our practicing. We've got to get the order right here. So what we're looking at this morning is, is important but kind of tricky. It's not really practicing is irrelevant. It's an order. Christ. We're talking about that here at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And really this is sort of like a two-part sermon here. This week and next week are pretty closely connected. I'm going to read the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, and then draw out three observations. I'm going to really kind of two and a half observations from it. So let me read the passage. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or, and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, two and a half observations. Here's the first. Don't trust in any practice itself that is meant to lead you on to Christ himself. Don't trust in any practice itself that's meant to, that the goal of which is to lead you on to Christ himself. The whole, whole preceding paragraph before this is one long Discussion of what it means to walk in him. We're in union with him. So, verse 16, now, let no one pass judgment on you. Which certainly has something to say about if, if you find yourself having sinned, then you should say, ah, I remember it. walking in him. I'm walking in forgiveness. So, yes, that's sin, but, but I'm forgiven. And, and not let that condemnation stick. Yes, there's something to that. But, but that's not where Paul's actually going here. So follow this, he's getting something different. Evidently, some around the church were passing judgment on Christians, it says, in, in regard to food and drink, regard to the festival, probably the feasts, new moons, Sabbath observances, all of which has a Jewish bent to it. So we can imagine someone saying to the church, so you worship the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah while you're eating a pork sausage and watching a football game on the Sabbath. Really? No. You can't do that. God doesn't honor that. God doesn't bless that. In, in fact, 
It's in God's law, and I can point to chapter and verse where God doesn't honor that, where God doesn't bless that. You can't do that. What are you doing here? That, that's not what God honors. You, you can't actually walk with him like that. There's, there's the judgment. And Paul's rebuttal of it is not, let no one pass judgment on you, you're forgiven of all that sin. It's all nailed to the cross, so therefore there's no condemnation on you. No, in fact, it's different. Verse 17 he acknowledges that is all in there. There can point to chapter and verse. Yep, it's in there as a shadow. Testifying, like all shadows do, to a looming and in this case, approaching reality. You can picture yourself standing in a room. This is, we've all had this experience. You're standing in the room and you see cast on the floor a shadow. And it's growing and spreading. And so you know, you can then hear, but you see the shadow, you know someone's coming down the hallway and instinctively your eyes are drawn to the edge of the corner where the appearing will happen. And then when she steps around the corner and nobody sees her and then looks back at the shadow that's now moved on past and, and looks at the shadow and wonders. You see the shadow and you know someone's about to appear and you're looking where they're coming and then your eyes are fixed on the reality, especially if that reality is captivating. Especially when the substance himself, that fullness of deity that is in Christ, is so all-encompassing and so everything we need, which he is. Verse carefully says that it's not just that the substance is Christ. If you look closely, the substance is Christ's. It's possessive. It belongs to him. The fullness. Everything of substance belongs to him. He has it. And will give it to us. All throughout the Old Testament, in every chapter, you can find something, some sort of shadow. Maybe it's a commandment. Maybe it's a festival. Maybe it's, maybe it's an, an incident, an occurrence. And all of it is in one way or another saying something about what God would one day be or do or become for his people. Laying out, there's, there's a promise. There's something of God's character shown. There, there's, a, there's a statement about how he would take care of sin. Something constantly being shown. Shadow, 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 shadow. And a worshiper is supposed to, to, to see that, to read it, and to receive from it some sort of an encouragement, some sort of an insight, some sort of a resting, some sort of a hope. There's what God has promised. It's coming. I can see it. I can almost taste it. I can. And then when it appears, you have it in Christ. Every good thing, every blessing, every promise, every hope is Christ's. And in him, he gives it to you. Not in him and in the not eating of pork so that you remain ceremonially clean. No. Not in Christ and in religiously, carefully keeping the Passover feast or eating a Seder meal so that we can look forward to the passing over of sin. Not 
Christ and. This, this is a church. That's the temptation to them and, and to us. We're not thinking about Christ or. They're being offered Christ and. And Paul's answer is no. Not Christ and dietary cleansing. Not Christ and Passover observance. Not Christ and anything. Christ, Jesus. Everything this is all about is in him. And if you take him plus, what you're doing is actually denying him. Denying him and missing out on him. Th think about this. If I think I'm cleansed before God by Christ and observance of diet, then I don't really think I'm cleansed before God by Christ. Setting him aside, in fact, and missing out on the chance to walk in freedom. So the shadow is there for sure, but the shadow is over because the reality is here and everything the shadow was about is yours in him. Now, some people don't eat pork because they don't like the taste of pork. And that's too bad. But thank you. Supply and demand means that pork will be cheaper then, and, and I enjoy that. And some people like to do Seder. I know some even here, some like to do Seder meals around Easter time because you find it interesting. That's fine. Okay, it's fine. What Paul's attacking here is pass judgment on in relation to. What that judgment is saying is you, we, or I have to do this. It, it does something. We need it. That's where we can't go. If, if you want to practice the state, if you don't want to eat pork, great. But, but be careful. Think, this is the tricky part. You have the freedom to do that. You have a, a liberty in Christ to do that. We, we see Paul even in the New Testament feeling free to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. You have the freedom to do that, but be careful. It's tricky. Because do you think, I'm going to do that you know, just in case? And if so, no. If you find yourself hedging your bet, or if you find yourself like looking down on others who probably shouldn't do that, then you might be thinking too much. Here's a practice that must be practiced for God to bless. Now, probably, I'm going to guess that most of us don't really struggle with this issue on these particular topics related to Jewish practices and the Jewish calendar. Probably not. So let's change it a little bit and let's put in some Christian practices and the Christian calendar. Because we could chapter and verse that stuff too. Some of it's in the very next chapter. We could find things that are incumbent upon Christians. Clearly, Sunday morning worship service, participation in the church, financial giving to the church, your personal Bible reading time, your personal prayer time. Things Christians are to practice. And I'm sure if one or the other of those doesn't connect with you, maybe give some time to think, what, what's, what's for me here? 
What do I think that if I missed that, or if someone else misses that, they, me, my family, we're going to miss God's blessing because we haven't practiced properly. So, what should you do with them? Should we just stop doing all those things? No. Don't trust in them. Don't trust in the practices that are meant to lead us onto Christ himself. We must make a point in all those practices, and we've got Christian practices in, in those things, to, to sit in them and consider Jesus within them whenever engaging with them. Like this. Jesus, here I am, sitting in church, practicing the gathering together of the saints like I'm supposed to. So what am I doing here? Did you trust that you're coming to church? Kind of put one on the right side of the tally mark with God. No. You come to church and you, and you sit here and you consider, what am I seeing? What, what am I hearing? What am I understanding about you, Jesus? What's promised to me and delivered, certainly assured for me by you and in you? Who are you for me? What is your work for me? And you think, you think about your life. I find it really helpful, as I mentioned before, to, to work through Jesus and his offices. And I think, Jesus, here I am reminded again. And as I sing this song, as I hear this sermon, as we pray this prayer, I'm reminded that you are a great priest for me. And you have gained for me, as you forgave me at the cross, you've gained for me access into God's very presence. And I will have mercy and grace Here's my life, and I need mercy and grace. Come from you, Jesus. You must engage like that and not just think, I came to church and got it done. Jesus, church, Bible reading, service, etc., means to an end. Our focus must be on communing personally with Jesus. Himself. In Him is everything we need, not in the practicing of the practices. You see, the, you see that? This is tricky. Do you see the subtle difference here? But practicing the practices is, is the means by which I bump into Jesus in truth. But in, yes, 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 yes. That's why it's tricky. You can't skip church and throw away your Bible, but you can't trust church and your Bible. Jesus. The practices so easily become our focus. And we believe, we feel. You ever had this experience? You get up in the morning and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon you realize, I didn't read my Bible today. Does God love me? Maybe you don't quite put it like that. But that might be how you think. I haven't actually prayed in, in several days. Is he listening to me? Is he attentive to me? You might just find right there that not Jesus, but your practice is what you're leaning on. And not having practiced, you're not sure how you stand. Don't trust the practices that are meant to bring us to him himself. Consider Jesus. It's the first observation. Secondly, then. Don't pursue any path to maturity other than Christ. 
won't pursue any path to maturity other than Christ, any path to, to growth, to Christian growth, Christian maturity other than Christ. So verse 18 brings up another possible accusation the church might face. Apparently, someone is attempting to disqualify them, saying, you know, you're, you're a failure, you're not any good, you, you've fallen short, disqualified, another way of just accusing and condemning them insisting they need something more. And while, again, it's not completely clear what's going on here, it does seem that what the issue is is some sort of a way to become more spiritually mature, to grow, because Paul's rebuttal at the end of this section talks about the growth that God gives, the growth that comes to us from him in the church. And in verse 19. So it seems like that's, that's the issue here. Critics were attacking the church, saying, you must have asceticism and the worship of angels and then visions of all sorts. Literally the last phrase there about the visions is what has been seen upon entering. So it seems these these outsiders are saying I have arrived somewhere sweet. I've entered in. Somewhere exclusive. I got there. And I had some sort of an, of an angelic, of a, of a heavenly, of a supernatural encounter. I've seen things and I perceive the higher reality. Something, something supernatural. I, I've, I've spoken with him. I've felt the presence of spirits. It's amazing. You need this too. And you could have it if you would practice in this way. And it seems like the asceticism is the path to get to that experience. Literally, the word is about strong, humbling, self-humiliation. Asceticism is not a word we use very often, but it's about denying self. People would go through ritual cleansings, and some people still do this today, and even with such rigor. You eat certain things that cause everything to pass out of you, to cleanse you on the inside, and you wash the outside so as to be cleansed on the outside. And then you deny any kind of pleasure, any kind of convenience, so you limit diet very much, and you drink water, and you sleep on the floor in rags. Maybe, maybe out in the wilderness in some isolated place, beating your body and, and subjecting it to show God you're serious. I don't want this world. I want you. And then maybe like Jesus in the desert, you call out and the angels come and minister to you. And what happens there is something really spiritual. Visions. People come out the other side of that having had encounters, and in this case, vocalizing, you need to reach this higher spiritual plane. It was amazing. It's like I was no longer in this world. You could too if you'd come with me. That's inviting. For people who long for maturity and growth and advancement beyond the mundane who want some sense of supernatural wonder and power. 
I mean, we talk about supernatural, we talk about wonder, we talk about power, and I'm really bored with the same old hymns that we're singing and struggling with the same old sin that I'm struggling with and the same old sense of aimlessness in my same old house as I change the same old dirty diapers, not the exact same, same old dirty diapers, but they look similar. <laughs> and I wonder what the point of all this is. I mean, we're, we, we talk about the king and the kingdom and the heavens and the angels and power, and my life is for crying out, stinking, boring. And you say you've been somewhere and seen something. Oh, tell me about that. How? Where? In that kind of a place, Christian growth looks ordinary and boring and slow. And we find ourselves really vulnerable to get spiritually rich quick fads. We're people, and we're Americans, so we really want to mature quickly with excitement by this evening if possible. So we're prone to chase experiences. A little Shazam wonder sounds pretty nice. Paul's assessment, it's just so much pride. These people are puffed up with their sensuous minds. The word behind sensuous there is fleshly. Their minds are flesh. They're not thinking with the spirit, they're thinking with their flesh. And they're puffed up. It is arrogance. I have arrived at some place where you need to go. And I came this special way by me, myself, so subjugating myself and so denying myself. What I did to press myself down and to prove to God that I was really serious, I I did that. You should too. It's just pride through and through. And you can particularly tell it's pride because they've let go of the head not holding fast to Christ who is himself fullness, who is everything we need. God does mean to grow us. God means to grow us. The growth comes from God, but God grows us as we hold fast to Christ within the people of God. You see the body of Christ there. He uses that language of of the, the piece of the body, ligaments, holding the body together. The body is held together like a temple with Christ as the head over it or Christ as the spirit in it. That's that's how the growth that we need comes to us. And it is a sweet thing when it comes to us and it comes to us from God. It is given by him. Christ the head, he will feed us. He will because he's obligated himself to do that. When he claimed us as his people, claimed us at the cross as his people, what he did was he said, I will take care of you. I will carry you to maturity. I will. I will. I will. So we trust him and not in any other path that's going to grow us up or lead us to the experience of of divine realities, of supernatural growth. Now again, here's where this gets tricky to apply because everything that came to my mind when I thought about this what does, this, what does this mean for us? Everything came to my mind, I thought, yes, but, but maybe not. Yes, but maybe not. And so everything that I'm going to suggest might be, and it, it could be 
reason I'm prefacing it this way carefully, is that it could be close to you. But in saying it, I'm not saying you're in the wrong on this. I'm just saying, think about it. Maybe. The first piece, obviously, that comes to my mind is the asceticism piece, the denial of self and self-pleasures and self-comforts, the denial of the ordinary pleasures and, and provisions of the world to try to, like, show God I'm serious about it. To cut out those things that are tempting. And maybe you do that with, with pleasures and with food. For me, I have a, a particular hobby that I've been involved in for a long time. I paint and collect military miniatures. But I have twice completely divested myself of all of them to show God I'm serious. Here's the tricky part. Is it wrong to divest yourself of the implements of a hobby? No. Is it possible that whatever kind of a hobby you're engaged with actually should be out of your life? Because it's got too big of a hold of it. Yeah, it's possible. And is it possible that that hobby is perfectly fine? Yeah, and that's where I am now. But twice, once, I threw it all away into the garbage can. Once, second time, I thought, well, that was foolish, and I sold it. vowing to use the money for the Lord's work. And I did. And I did. And I did. But do you see what's going on there in my heart? Or what could be going on in my heart? See, is it, is it wrong to sell you things you have and use the money for the Lord's work? No, of course not. But I'll tell you what was going on in my heart. And what I'm just saying is, check. Just check. This, Lord, is how serious I am. I, I want to grow. It's got little to do with this, but but I want to show you, and I'm going to get rid of this so that I'm, my hobby, this thing that I enjoy, is, is gone out of my life. And then I'm going to use the money to further your work. That's how much I'm committed. Because I want, I want more of you. I want to grow. And in that sense, no. It's tricky, though. Maybe for you, it, your hobby's fine, or... Were you getting rid of that hobby was good? What about worship music? Tricky because worship music is good and good worship music is better. But I ask you, just maybe, Sometimes, maybe for you, the words in the doctrine in the song aren't really that relevant. It's the beat and the rhythm that moves you. Kind of like every other piece of music is like that moves you. But you want that kind of worship music and you pursue that kind of worship music because that beat and that rhythm... You feel like you transcend this place and like you are in the presence of God. What were the words in the doctrine? I don't know, but man, I was moved. And the same words in the same doctrine in another song, eh, 
I need this experience, and that comes by this type of instrumentation and this kind of... Now, it's tricky because music itself is, is what it is because it grabs our hearts. Tricky. And we should attempt to have good music and to do it well. For sure, yes. So I just ask you, is it about the rhythm and the beat that it takes you somewhere where you feel more spiritual? Your friend has the same experience at a totally secular concert. What about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts? This is tricky because I want to say so important so important. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit at work in the church, gifting the church is, is fundamental to how the church is and works and grows. But I ask you, I have, I have met people and I, I know people for whom, I think, I think Paul's actually speaking to this even in 1 Corinthians, for whom the exercise, the practice of the gifts themselves not the Jesus the gifts are meant to lead us onto. The, ex- the exercise of the power in the gifts themselves is the focus. And I have it and you don't. I've arrived somewhere. Let me tell you how to get here by this gifting rather than by Jesus. Tricky because the gifts are biblical and the spirit is critical, but tricky. Lastly, let me just throw this one out. What about your approaches to parenting? Now, should we approach parenting in some careful, good, wise way? Absolutely, for sure. Yep, we must. But are you, oh, just ever so, ever so subtly, are you in a sense trusting the practicing of that way, whatever it is, to gain you some greater blessing from God on your children or on your family, to bring them into a place where they experience greater blessing from God as they grow up. Tricky because we must parent carefully and wisely. Tricky. But sometimes we trust our parenting more than we trust Jesus. Just consider We must, whatever way, whatever path we are following to pursue growth and maturity that isn't front and center Jesus. Front and center, because Jesus is in all those things, right? Front and center Jesus. Front and center in communion with the church, fed from the head. We may be off. So, Here's the half point. Don't be duped, the third point. Don't be duped back into trying to live the Christian life by trying hard to follow the rules. Sounds like kind of a summary statement because it is. Don't be duped back into trying to live the Christian life by trying hard to follow the rules. I get this from verses 20 to 23, the the last paragraph here. 
which forms a hinge of sorts. In one way, this is clearly connected to the first paragraph of the next chapter. It's, that's very obvious if you notice verse 20 is about if with Christ you died, and verse 1 is if with Christ you've been raised. They're, they're two halves of a coin. So I'm going to deal again with this paragraph next week in conjunction with the beginning of chapter 3. On the, on the other hand, there is a general summary here because he mentions some of the same stuff he's just been mentioning. We, we see here again rules about eating and the mention of asceticism and the severe treatment of the body, things we just saw, but now he's repeated them again, taking them out of their specific context. So he's got some sort of a summary here. So let's think about it briefly. Verse 20, you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, the supernatural spirits. We've talked about this before. They run this place. Beneath God, of course, but Satan and his powers, the elemental spirits of the world, they have a dominion now. They, they have power in the world. And before a person becomes a Christian, that's the power you answer to. The power we used to answer to bound to that power, not freed yet, bound to it still. Our flesh and that power. And bound to look then at this plane, this worldly plane. And bound, limited, controlled to pursue change in our lives in the stuff we can touch and grab and manipulate. Stuff here. That's all we could do. That was the way of life. But we have now died to that and you are freed from it. And so here's, here's where the glory of, of God freeing us in Christ comes in. This is an aspect of his grace. Jesus came and submitted himself carefully to every single one of those rules and followed it all to a T. We didn't. He did. And then he died condemned in place of us in part, critically, crucially, to nail all of our sins to the cross, as we talked about, and, and to provide forgiveness for us. Yes, indeed, amen. But another aspect of what happened there is a freeing us to live a new life. It's a little bit like if you play video games and you're, you know that when you get to level two, you, your character has like new powers opened up to him or her. You'll be able to jump over that wall. But at level one, you can't. You get two different lives for your character. The cross provides forgiveness, and the cross opens up the second level. You live in a different way now. You're not bound to look down here. You're not limited to try to affect change in your life only by things you can manipulate following human commands, as we see there, that deals with the stuff that perishes. I mean, how futile is it? It's like rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. Everything you touch is going away anyway. What's the point of all this? I can't actually get at what's real. I can talk about the food I eat, but I can't talk about my heart. It runs off all kinds of crazy places. I can't, I can't control it. I can control my diet and what I do on Thursday, but I can't get here. Now you can. So why would you go back? Why would you submit yourself to, to the old way, the limited way of affecting change? 
God has done something sweet for us. What he did in the cross was sweet. He made you a new creation. A new person who lives in a new way with a new power planted within you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, says this book. Him who is everything now resides in you to change your heart, to change you within, to grow you from within. He's the one to be trusted. He's the one to be turned to. He's the one to have your mind set upon, as we'll see next week. In whatever practice we pursue, whatever activity confronts you, whatever you want to eat or, or drink or whatever it is, in every moment, not the practice, not the activity, not the devotion you are showing, but the Jesus in whom you live and move and have your being, he's your focus. And so you say to him every day something like, here, Jesus, here is me. Show me you. You are my hope. You are my redeemer. You are my king. You are my prophet. You are my priest. Here's my life and here's my condition. Here's my circumstances and my fears. And then you apply this one to them and you rest in him. I'm uncertain, but you're a king and you rule. You control all the circumstances in my life so that providentially it all works for your glory and my good. I trust you. Meet me and help me to trust you and change me within and grow up in me what needs to be there and guide me and teach me as my prophet. Show me the glory and the beauty of God. Fill my soul with you. And you'll be doing that as you practice and as you practice and as you sit here practicing. But the focus is on him himself. Fill my soul with you. Satisfy me with your goodness and with your love, with yourself. And there God gives growth from above. We walk in him. Focused on him personally and not just the practices. Let me pray. Lord, you are our hope and you are a good one. Because you are certain and sure and sufficient. So fill us, please, with yourself. And help us to wisely use the practices and to wisely sort through the things we engage with. Intent on finding you there. A lot of this is tricky. Please help us to be careful and wise. Speak to your people, Lord, and grow us up to your honor and for our good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.